0: You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast, and I like it.
1: You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio. Earlier this week, we lost the legendary Denny Lane, guitarist, singer, songwriter, and co-founder of the Moody Blues, the often overlooked but way ahead of its time electric string band, and of course, Wings. As a matter of fact, aside from Paul and Linda McCartney, Denny was the only constant member to remain throughout the band's entire run from 1972 to 1981. In 2007, I interviewed Denny for a profile I was writing on him for a local New England arts and entertainment magazine in advance of an appearance he was making at a nearby festival. And I thought the best way, perhaps the only way, to pay proper tribute to this uniquely talented musician was to share that interview in its entirety. In it, Denny sets a lot of things straight from why he left the Moody Blues what really happened surrounding his departure from Wings. We started off talking about a solo album he was working on at the time. And bear in mind this interview was not recorded for broadcast. It was done as a way to take audio notes to later be used for the article. So please forgive the low fidelity. But what should come through quite clearly is a man who is passionate about making great music And from all accounts, that is what he was fighting to return to throughout his lengthy battle with an illness that inevitably took his life on December 5th, 2023.
0: We've already said.
2: in the studio i want to hear all about it tell me about valley of dreams
3: all right well i'm about three quarters of the way through this album it's taken longer than we scheduled but uh that's what happens always you know mm-hmm. um it's 14 tracks they're all about my living in america actually for the last nine years they're all sort of based around the california valley and the vegas valley okay well they're written in those places i should say Basically, the concept of the album is to do with, uh, you know, people who want to make it in, in any kind of business or, you know, just uh, success stories of people that come to these places to try and make it, you know, to make, to be successful. So that's the theme. It's sort of a concept album. So, you know, we're having a lot of fun doing it, but. So, like I say, we're, I'm trying. I'm going to have to fit in some time in the next couple of months when I'm going to be very busy on the road to to uh, to finish it off. Because we're hoping for an October release. That's what we want.
2: Now, who are some of the, the the players you're playing with? Is this your standard road band, or some special friends, guys you've called up?
3: I don't have a standard road band. I've. I've been working with various bands over the years, depending on what part of the world they you know I'm, I'm in. In actual fact, one of the guys, Vinnie Costaldo, is is the, the drummer and the producer of the album. Okay. Is a New Yorker and uh, he's been living in Vegas for twenty years. He has a place called the Tone Factory, which is the studio we're working in. So you know, it's just kind of a localized thing. He he overheard some of my demos via a mutual friend. In fact, uh, my computer guy played him some of the the demos and he called me up and says, I want to do a deal. So it it took a while and then we finalized it and there we are.
2: How would you describe the styles on it?
3: Well, there's a lot of guitar. I'm trying to sort of show off my sort of lead guitar side of me a little bit more than I have in a lot of other things that I've done.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: You know, really in the wings era I was more of a rhythm guitarist you know um, odd job man really but uh, this is more you know they're all my songs and and there's a lot of guitar and keyboard you know I, I play keyboards and guitar and as well so right. but generally we're trying to bring in um, extra people to guest on it in a way so you know with Pro Tools these days you can do that you can send off stuff and you know have other people work on your albums and
2: they can do it by email and never leave their house.
3: Well, that's what I'm saying. But in fact, I just got in touch with Mike Pinder from the Moody Blues, and he's going to put some mellotron on one of the tracks. So that's kind of a you know a nice nostalgic touch. That's great. So I'm I'm hoping to get more people to guest on it. Um, but in the meantime, like I say, I'm just kind of finishing off the basics.
2: Do you have a tender release date?
3: Yeah, you know, Octoberish. I okay. Should. But that, that's because I'm pretty busy with this hippie festing in August, and in September I'm doing a television show, so, you know, it's, it's not because, I mean, if I had the time, it would probably come out a lot earlier, but that's the way it is.
2: I understand Django Reinhardt is one of your big guitar influences. Talk to me a little bit about the beginning, and what got you into the whole deal, and who were some of your influences? <laughs>
3: music in general. I found out later in life that so, you know, I came from a gypsy background anyway, from my father's side. For some reason, as a kid, I was very attracted to all that, so that's why, probably, and Django being, you know, the ultimate gypsy guitar player. Mm. And uh, A friend of mine at school was a jazz guitarist, and, you know, I kind of learned a little bit of that style in those days, and then I went on to rock and roll, really, um, because of the well, because everybody was into it, you know. Buddy Holly, That Will Be The Day, was the first record I ever bought, I think, you know. But I've been influenced by a lot of my sister's music, and that that ranged from, you know, I don't know, from Mario Lanza to Johnny Ray to Frankie Lane, and all those kind of, uh, you know, American sort of heart trub singers that you know, my sister was into. <laughs> she had a huge record collection, and I kind of grew up on that, and then... Um, went into rock and roll, as I say, when Buddy Holly
2: came around. Did you know right away that was what you were going to be doing with the rest of your life, or was it just...
3: Oh, I don't... <laughs> no way. I mean, I wanted to. I mean, I, I, in school, I joined a couple of bands. I mean, I was playing a bit of guitar because i started out... I was, I was in a pantomime school as a kid, and um, I used to play and sing in, in the intervals between the two parts of the show. And that developed into getting invited to be a singer in a, in a band at school. And then I uh, kind of went and got a job as a trainee buyer in a huge musical department of a huge store, which was the Birmingham's equivalent of Harrods, if you, if you know that
0: store. Yeah, sure.
3: sure. So I was training and I was there for about, I should say, I don't know, about a year. And then I heard the Beatles, you know, love me do. And I thought, well, that's it, I'm going to turn professional, so I did. Um, the band I had at the time, Denny Lane and the Diplomats, didn't want to move to London, so I, I thought I had to move to London to, to make it, you know? In mm-hmm. those days, that's where all the companies were, record label. So, that's how the Moody Blues came about, and the rest is history, basically.
2: Well, just rewinding to the Diplomats a little bit, did you not play a gig at the Plaza Ballroom with the Beatles? Yeah did actually.
3: Um, I know that the, the two guys out at the Moody's had gone to Germany and met the Beatles, had sort of seen what they were doing in Germany. And when they formed the Moody Blues, they wanted me to go to Germany and carry on because I mean, they knew there was work out there, you know. And um, I'd heard all about these bands that were going out there, including the Beatles, who were doing well and they were working hard. But, you know, it was getting good exposure and stuff. But we decided to go to London instead mm. and um, not back to Germany. But no, that was the first time I'd ever met and played with the Beatles was that. And, and I went sort of, you know, I mean, in the dressing room. They were big then. Right. Um, and I remember the revolving stage we were on first and then about the end of our act, the stage turned around and pulled all the leads out of the speakers. Somebody forgot to take the leads out. For so when the Beatles came on there was no microphones working but you couldn't hear them anyway because of the the girls screaming right you know and John was pointing at his microphone and saying what's going on that kind of thing but
2: the moody blues Bessie Banks had the song on Redbird I really don't know if it had any chart success but obviously when you guys did Go Now it just went internationally yeah. how'd you come to do the song?
3: Well it was because a friend of ours a guy called James Hamilton was an English DJ he went to America I think he teamed up with Alan Freed or something he was a friend of Alan Freed and he came back with a whole suitcase full of singles you know and Go Now was one of them so we used to do a lot of these songs on stage, we added them to our repertoire. You know, there's things like uh, Steal Your Heart Away, Barefoot In by Robert Parker, mm. the, God, I can't, there's some James Brown stuff, you know, kind of obscure stuff that you couldn't buy in England. Basically. Right. So we kind of added that to our our stage set. And then after a while, people started saying, that's a really great song. That's going to, you know, and you should record that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And that went on for a while. And then finally, we did go in and and make it became a hit. So there you go.
2: How long after that did you leave the Moody Blues at that point?
3: Well, the Moody's. Basically, we're on the road doing kind of every gig they could get because we did an album, first album came out. It didn't get a lot of attention, but it got some underground attention, but it wasn't any child success. And we got ripped off by our management. Financially, so we're all struggling to just survive by doing millions of gigs. And I wanted to go in the studio, and I kind of dug my heels in and said, You know, if we don't go in the studio, what's the point going on? And I kind of amicably, you know, went off and did my own thing, basically. Mm. And of course, they had to go in the studio then, finally. I think they had one more album they had to do for Decca, and they ended up going in and doing something with an orchestra, and then it turned into Days of Future Past, and then. That's the history for them. That's what happened. They found Nights in White Fatin and they went off and became successful. So I was happy about that.
2: But was Justin Haywood and you ever in the band at the same time?
3: No. No, he replaced me, and so did John Lodge replace our bass player. John Lodge's original choice for a bass player, but he didn't want to come down to London and leave his... I think he was in school or something, you know? He was in college. So... He ended up being in the band and, and adjusting, and then I did a gig with him. I had a band called the Electric String Band. I did a gig with him in London on the same bill, um, and then I didn't see him again for years. I mean, you never see people after you've sort of left.
0: Right,
3: right. Until many years later, I actually did an Irish TV show with Justin, and he sang Nights You Might Satin, and I sang Go Now. <laughs> it was quite a fun experience, and we sat and talked all day, you know. Right. Good fun. So after that, I put a single out called Say You Don't Mind, which was kind of a, an idea of the direction I was going, and it had, it was like a folk rock trio with four string musicians from the Royal Academy of Music, and that went on for about a year. I did that at the Jimi Hendrix show. Paul had and J- Leonard had seen me doing this, and the word got around that that was my new thing, and one day I was down at Steve Winwood's house. This is after I came back and, and see what happened was I went out to live in Spain for a while to get my head back together. Yeah. And then I came back and got involved with Trevor Burton from The Move, who was the same management that, that the Moody's had had, even though they'd ripped us off. I still ended up going back with Tony Secunda. He was the driving force of the management, but I, I don't blame him for the whole financial thing. It's just that he was the guy who could make things happen. So... I ended up getting back in with him and Trevor Burton, and we we formed a little band called Balls with with Alan White, who eventually went on to play drums with Yes. Yeah. And then nothing really came of that. And and, then during that time, I was down at Steve Winwood's cottage, Traffic's cottage, and, and Ginger and Eric were there, and we had a little jam. They went on to form Blind Faith. Right. So that was my contact with Ginger, even though originally in the Moody Blues, we'd done the Chuck Berry tour and I'd met Ginger and Jack Bruce because they were part of one of the bands that was on there, the Graham Bond organization. So I knew them from those days. Right. And we we're all under the same marquee artists and agencies. So we used to bump into all these people during the course of the, you know those years. So one thing led to another. Ginger's around my house one day. Um, we were having a little bit of a single song around the piano and he asked me if I wanted to join this band he had an idea for, which was Ginger Baker's Air Force. So I dragged Trevor along to that and Alan White and they all became members of it for a short period. So there you go. So that went on. We put a single out called Man of Constant Sorrow. Ginger went away for rehab and uh, it never got back together. So that was that situation.
2: Was it Chris Wood now?
3: Wood might have been in it yeah to mm. start with, and, and steve winwood
2: yeah did you just do the one lp yeah,
3: yeah
2: is wings the next thing that happens well
3: yeah virtually because but it was after that that i um you see this is where my memory goes a little bit <laughs> haywire because it's the timing of everything
2: right
3: i think it was after that that i See, I had this string band thing, and then I lived in
2: Spain. Incidentally, not to interrupt you, but the string band you mentioned, uh, the couple of things I've read, they, they keep saying that it was like a precursor to ELO. Yeah. Uh, would, you, would you characterize it that way?
3: Well, I would, because I was at one point going to join a- ELO before it was called ELO.
2: Was it the move?
3: It was, no. It was me and uh, a few guys that ended up joining ELO. Um, I think it was the keyboard player, and uh, Steve Gibbons was involved. and You know, I wanted to do that idea of having strings in the band.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, what happened was it wasn't going to work. I could see it was, wasn't going to work, and so I went my own way, and then I think some of the guys out of that joined up with Bev Bevan and Jeff Lynn. I mean, Bev Bevan used to be the drummer in the Denny Lane and the Diplomats. That's how I knew him. So they took it to the next level, which was great, you know. Yeah. So that was that. So anyway, you know, not sure about what the times and the dates were, but i this string band thing went on for about a year. I finally said, right, I've done the the Jimi Hendrix show. And I went away and lived in Spain for a while. When I got back, it, I got the call from Paul, basically.
2: And how'd that go down? Tell me what that was like.
3: Well, he, I mean. Very impressed by the Jimi Hendrix show. I mean, it went down really well. But it's because I was doing something, you know, a little bit. I don't know, out there. You know, I was. I was, I was testing the water with a new idea, basically, and, and it worked that particular night really well. You know, mm-hmm. even Hendrix commented on it and said, "Yeah, great, good ideas." You know. Mm-hmm. Gave me a compliment on my guitar playing, even. So, you know, I knew I had a good thing, but it was so expensive to keep going. And also the guys in the band were working all over the world doing uh, classical recitals, you know? Yeah. They were all soloists from the Royal Academy. So the actual logistics of keeping that band going was ridiculous. Sure. So I just kind of shelved it, went away, and uh, then when I came back, I got the phone call I was actually living in the office at the time. I was living in one of the rooms at the back of our office in in uh, in Mayfair. And um, I didn't have any dough. I was just kind of thinking, what the hell am I going to do? Because, you know, we never made money out of the Moody's, like like I said. So I was kind of struggling financially. So I went um, up to Scotland, you know, and it just started. And I met up with Denny Cywell, the drummer. And then it was just me, Paul and Denny, and, of course, Linda. And then uh, we just jammed a few weeks, and then I, I suggested Henry McCulloch from Joe Cocker's Grease Band, who was yep. a friend of mine. Yep. Actually, while I was living in the office in Mayfair, I'd, I'd been round to see them rehearsing around, just around the corner from me, and uh, Danny Cordell, who was the Moody Blues producer, he produced the Moody's first album, was producing Joe Cocker.
2: But even before that, give me an idea. Paint a picture. What's the phone call like? What does he offer you? Is it just casual? Or did it seem like this was going to be a permanent position? How did it go? Uh, there's
3: no... In this business, there's no such thing as a permanent position.
2: <laughs> I know, right. I mean, nobody's going to commit themselves to
3: anything until they you see what happens. Right. So Hi, man. What's going on? What are you doing? Fancy getting a band together? It was simple as that. And I said, Sure, <laughs> you better believe it. So he said, "Right, there's a flight tomorrow. If you want to get it, I'm in Scotland. Jump on the plane, and I'll see you there."
2: <laughs> when things like that happen, do you talk money, or do you just let it?
3: No, we don't money. No, at all.
2: Not at all, huh? And
3: we went up there, and you know, I wasn't thinking money. Nobody was thinking money, and uh, all basically all I got was some you know expenses for uh, for. I don't know, just your expenses paid, you know. And then we later on, of course, when we got going, we, we started talking deals, you know. Yeah.
2: So now this would be after we, Ram was
3: inside, what? Well, I had played on Ram, the drummer on Ram. That's why he got the job. But none of the other guys on Ram wanted a tour.
2: Like Hugh McCracken?
3: They didn't want a tour. Right, right. They were all session guys. So that's why Paul wanted to put a band together. So what happened was Denny stayed I, and Paul had called me because he knew me and because he knew I was into, like, doing new stuff. You know, I was kind of totally open to try stuff. And <clears throat> and he also knew that I wouldn't be intimidated by him because of him being a Beatle, you know. And uh he knew he could work with me because he knew me and uh I was not about to sit around and just be his yes man, you know, and that's what he wanted.
2: Did you feel that... Kind of that give and take that him and Lennon obviously must have had over the years. Did, did you feel like he was looking for a replacement for that as well?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, Paul's the first to, to admit, you know, that he, he liked to work with Lennon because Lennon sort of leveled him out, you know. He, he, he toughened him up and he kind of balanced out Lennon's personality too, you know. That's why you get songs like, i got to admit, it's getting better and Lennon saying, it can't get much worse, you know. All right. You know what I mean? There's that.
2: Thing. Well, tell me how you fit that bill. What, what, give me some examples of where you did that.
3: Well, it's, uh, there would be a situation I can't remember exactly, but <clears throat> the, you know, he would he would play an idea, and I would just play something to it or sing something to it, and he'd say, "Yeah, that's that's exactly what you know." It was just an automatic chemistry. Yeah, I suppose that's what it is. You just. There's no, we, you know, that's why we never really argued all the time we were together because we just had a very positive, you know, if I didn't like something, I would say it. And if he didn't like something, he would say it. And, but it was never like, you know, we would just be thinking positive. We've got to get something written here or we've got a, a tour to do or we've got this to do. And we put music like before everything and that's what we did. And we, we both felt that way, you know so therefore we never really
1: we never really argued
3: in fact the only time we ever argued was over I don't know over like my ex-wife wanting to come to one of the, the video recordings <laughs> and he didn't want to there and I don't blame him really because you know they, they get in the way sometimes you know when you've got to do your work and just the silly little things like that I mean you, you always get you know I mean, we, we always put the music first, let's put it that way, and, and family life does suffer in some ways, you know, it did in my case for sure, but, you know, I was determined to sort of make this thing work, and um, that's what we did, and we had to start again virtually. You know, he had a lot of press trying to hound him, that's why we were up in Scotland, and, you know, we don't want people sort of criticizing us when we're starting something, you know, we want to be left alone to get it good, you know, and that's what we did.
2: Is that why you guys toured the uh, college circuit at the beginning?
3: We did that, yeah. Yeah. And of course, he was trying to sort of cover up for Linda too. Right. He was trying to get her in shape and teach her a few things and teach her to harmonize and God knows what else so that she wouldn't make a fool of herself on stage. And then, you know, we just wanted to be a good band before we made an album, basically, before we really went out there and did it on big time, you know. He had a lot to lose. I didn't really have a lot to lose, me,
2: you know, but he did. Well, it seemed like a lot of the members, aside from yourself, came and went. Right. And the big one to me, if the story's correct, is the trip to Lagos. Kind of like on the eve of the trip to Africa, the band just said, we're not going. And oh, right, And yeah. you were like the only one who went along. I mean, that kind of tells me a lot about the kind of lo- you know loyalty that he was commanding at the time.
3: Yeah. Well, it wasn't really so much that. It's just that there was a lot of pressure on him. You know, and the, and a lot of the people that joined, they couldn't take the pressure, couldn't take the pressure of the twenty four hour job and the, and the press and the you know the whole, I don't know the hugeness of it all. It yeah. just you know could only take so much of it, and and it's a it's a big deal working with somebody like McCartney who's that big. It's it's beyond the personal relationships. And Paul was always pleasant and got on well with everybody, and and vice versa there's never. I and mean, he wasn't sort of you know acting the big superstar or any of that. But you know, in the public, when we became public, the pressure on everybody else is pretty, pretty much. You know, and it kind of wore you out. You know, just yeah. to be around it. You know, and that's one of the reasons I left, to be honest with you. You know, you want your own identity after a while.
0: Sure. Because you're
3: dragged into that whole thing, you know, and every question is, is you know, related to the Beatles and, and God knows what else. But, uh, you know, and it becomes a pressure. And, you know, I'm sure that these guys, you know, they, they made a few quid, as we say. They made some money, <clears throat> and they bought themselves a nice house and this and that and just thought, well, hell, you know, why do I want to work? Or maybe, you know, maybe I should just, you know, take it easy and spend some money. <laughs> sure, sure. You know what I mean? So it wasn't really... Anything other than just being tired of the, of the whole pressure, I think. from I'm talking about from the other guy's point of view. Because I wasn't tired of the pressure. Like I say, I, I loved it and relished it. and li- I liked it for all those years. You know, it wasn't until after 10 years I got tired of the pressure.
2: That's a hell of a run, no matter which way you look at it.
3: Yeah, but I was enjoying it. I was making music. Yeah. and I was enjoying, you know, Paul and Linda's company. I liked them. They were great people to me. They were like family to me. Right. Really? You know?
2: The great live album, Wings Over America, I, I don't know why that's never been reissued. Right. It's such a killer three-record set, and there's a couple of tracks that you participate in vocally. Yeah. And uh, I love your version of Richard Cory. Oh.
3: <laughs> why that? Why? Oh, I don't know. I, just, I did it for a laugh one day. Paul wanted to do um, an acoustic set. In fact, I think it might have even been my idea for him to do an acoustic set. I don't remember. But uh, I was into the folk music and all that. And we all were, you know. you got to remember, we all come from, like, some kind of Irish backgrounds. you yeah. know, where, where we, our ancestors were all kind of folky-type musicians, you know. And we wanted to do a little folk-type set. And I knew or had met a girl called Beverly Martin who married a, a singer called John Martin who was friends of Paul Simon yeah. and uh, he had been in their apartment one day and I think I was there listening to them running through some songs and I think that was one of the songs was Richard Corey. Yeah. In anyway, I ended up learning it and I used to do it you know for you know at parties or whatever you know and I sang it one day to Paul he says oh stick that in the set <laughs> so we did you know but uh, getting back to the band-on-the-run situation, Denny Sidewell had already decided he wanted to go back to America because he was kind of, you know, homesick. Yeah. That's what happens again with, the, with if you've got American people in the band, you know. Same with Joe dry English, you know, after him. But he went back to America, and it was Henry who was supposed to be coming to... Um, was it Henry or Denny? No, it was Henry who who left first. Because he was kind of, Henry was a bit of a loose cannon, you know. He wanted to kind of, uh, he was, he wanted to sort of have a bit more of a freedom, a bit more of a life, really outside of Wings, you know. Um, that's my take on it, anyway. And then it was Dennis Seywell who let us down whereas we were due to go to Africa yeah. and on the run he suddenly at the last minute says look I can't do it I've got to go back to America my home blah 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 so that was that but it ended up just being me me and Paul and Linda so we made the best of it in actual fact Ginger Baker was there Yeah. by then he had his own studio in Lagos and we did do one track in his studio
2: yeah didn't he didn't he play like uh, something with rocks in it or something yeah or was it was it a fire, fire bucket yeah that's it Oh, so you've done your homework. A right? little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about and Ty, which I guess was the biggest-selling UK single, yeah. right? Yeah. At the time?
3: Yeah. Well, again, he came to me, you know, I was over at his cottage one day and because I lived in another cottage on the estate up there, and I, I used to go over every evening, really, for dinner. Um, Linda would cook dinner, because um, I was living on my own up there most of the time in another little area, but which I loved. Don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it. The one thing about me is that I've stayed in five-star hotels, you know, for many years. And the one thing I love is the country, a little trailer, somewhere quiet, nothing to do with the music business, you know, no interruptions, just to get keep my brain intact. I like this, the extremes of, of having the peace and quiet of the country. And that's what I loved about being in Scotland, and so did Paul and Linda. Mm-hmm. So I used to sort of stay either in my trailer or I would stay in one of the cottages up there once they got one of the cottages ready. <clears throat> and I used to go for dinner. So he started playing me this, just this song, just the beginning, just the my looking. And he, I knew it was a hit just from that. So we went over the next day to my cottage and we sat there and just looked out and sort of, you know, checked out the whole environment and wrote the lyrics and the rest of the song. So, you know, I kind of helped him on getting all the lyrics together, and that was that. So, uh, and it was, it's a huge hit. We had a big, uh, Christmas hit with it, and I think it was the biggest-selling hit until Live Aid kind of came along, the Bob Geldof thing. Hmm. And, um, uh, that was that.
2: And yet it didn't make any business in the United States. No, I don't. Ironic, huh?
3: Well, that's because it was bagpipes, think, <laughs> and it was... Yeah. ...anonymous to Britain, you know, and the big sort of, uh, heritage and you know that sort of thing the
2: brits lap all that stuff up oh yeah and you had uh, co-writing yeah I did was that the only song you guys wrote together um
3: no that you got
2: credit for anyways
3: well no 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 we wrote a lot of songs that, that I was let's put it this way this is what I'm sure used to happen with Paul and John and I know it did for a fact if somebody came to you with a song which is like mainly their song and you helped them with it it would still be their song, really, but I would just get a small percentage. That's, that's the way it works with a lot of songs that, that he wrote that I helped him with. When it came to songs that I wrote, like Time to Hide, um, you know, I would just use them for publishing. Uh, he wouldn't take any money off the songs that I wrote. But if, he, if he added to one of the songs I wrote, like he did um, No Words, for example, which was on the, the Man on the Run album, mm. he would get a percentage of that. But it wouldn't be like a 50-50. It would depend on, on your input to the song, you know. Right. That's how it would work, generally.
2: Well, now the part that you probably dread talking about. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, of course you do, because you've probably heard it a thousand times. But the only thing I want to get is, I've heard a lot of what I would imagine is false information, right? Yeah.
3: And, it's not and, wrong either, it's false information.
2: Of course. A lot of it. So this is a forum to just totally set the record straight, which I'm sure you've been able to do before, but for the purposes of this interview, uh, once and for all, what happened?
3: Well, it was, for the rumor that I needed the money to buy drugs is a total load of bollocks. Because I was never a drug addict, that's the first thing, you know. I might have been done for a small amount of marijuana in the 70s, but that was my ex wife before we were married and she was American so to stop her getting found out of the country I rap. but apart from that you know uh, we were never into all that stuff I mean we used to smoke
2: I don't even want to touch upon that that's that's irrelevant I mean band wise band wise what happened what went wrong after 10 years band wise
3: I decided I wanted to leave and it was of many reasons, it wasn't because I hated the in any way, shape, or form, which some people seem to think we had a big fallout, which we didn't. Um, one of the reasons was tax reasons. I had to live out of the country for tax reasons because although Paul was paying the, the British taxes, which is phenomenal, and the, even to this day you wouldn't believe how much tax well paid people have to pay. Um, so I had to leave the country to do that. That would have created some. Logistic problems, you know, a lot in fact. And um, also, I wanted to do my own thing too. I wanted to have a, I'd been working on a solo album and I, you know, I wanted to put that out. Um, He got busted in Japan. That meant we couldn't tour Mm. for a while. Mm -hmm. And although I wanted to tour, I found it very difficult to go out and and follow Wings. I mean, people didn't want to know really, you know. Because I, although I had a name with the Moody Blues and the Wings, I didn't have a name as a solo artist. And I needed to build that up. And I still haven't really completely done that, if you know what I mean. It takes takes for years oh, of course. to get back, well, back in, in gear. So I, that was one of the reasons. The reasons I sold some of the writing back, and it was only on the material that he'd basically written, you know, and I had helped him with, it was a small percentage that I sold, you know, back. So I could get some money to live on, basically, to go and live in Europe and start again. That's all. Um, because I wasn't exactly, you know, I mean, we might have been living well, but I wasn't exactly like, well, there's no way I was as well off as McCartney.
2: Oh, yeah.
3: So, you know, I mean, it wasn't in my interest to stay in England, all that kind of thing. But, you know, after the this, this initial period you have to come out, I went back and I still got done by the tax man. I still got done.
2: Now, why wouldn't Paul have helped you out of that?
3: Well, because initially it wasn't really his problem. And to be honest, it wasn't. I was self-employed. It was my problem.
2: Yeah, but musical brothers, no?
3: Yeah, it don't matter. You know, I mean, that did cause some concern for me because I thought, yeah, you know. But then I also understood the fact that, yeah, it was my own fault. You know, all that and the fact that my ex-wife was really... Give me a hard time and yep. um, i went through a divorce during yep. that period so you know i just wanted to get the hell out of everything and just start again like i always do yeah that's what i'm like you know i i don't want to get th- let things really get to me so what i do is i just escape for a while you know i become sort of an ordinary musician again and that's what i did in spain i went and played flamenco music and went and hung out with all those people and just kind of became a bit of no recluse so much but i just wanted to write i wanted to you know go to my little farmhouse and just put a band together and do it that way you know
2: but now weren't you on the tug of war album
3: yeah but that was because that was going to be the album the next album before i left but it wasn't going to be a paul mccartney album it was going to be another wings album but, right and that's because we'd we'd worked with steve rwanda with and carl perkins We had, uh, what's his name on drums? Um, oh Jesus, I can't remember his name now. Steve Gadd.
2: So all those tracks were done as a Wings album?
3: They were initially. Well, you know, you don't think of it as anything else if you're still together as Wings. Right. So we did that with the idea of it being a sort of a union between, you know, people that we admired and us. And Paul was just basically trying to get real good musicians to join us for a new album, because we didn't have a band again, right? So that's what we did, and because I left, obviously, he put it out as a solo album, so.
2: How does McCartney 2 fit in with that chronology? With what? The McCartney 2 album. How does that fit in with the chronology? Was that after you left?
3: Which McCartney 2? Which was that?
2: The one with Coming Up, the one he recorded all by himself. Oh, yeah, but Coming Up, we recorded before. No, the studio version, not the live one. You know, the bit where even in the video he plays all the characters and... Oh,
3: that, yeah. 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 No, I don't know about that.
2: Okay.
0: To be
3: honest. I don't know anything. I did see him do that on Oprah once and thought, well, that's a bit weird. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, but we all, you know, for, what, how, for how weird it was, for many years after that, I ended up doing that myself. Again. Yeah. Because I couldn't afford to pay musicians or to go to the best studios and and do it on that level. So I started at the bottom again, and I started playing all the instruments. Right, right. Because I'd got all that experience from working with Paul, which, you know, that was a really good thing that happened with me. With Paul, because I got to be, you know, I got to learn how to do a lot of stuff without having to be the main man, you know.
2: I just want to address real quick. I have heard that you've been sandbagged a couple of times in interviews. Yeah. and I'd like to get your take on that and, and set the record straight. There might have been an incident with The Sun.
3: Oh, The Sun newspaper? Yeah. Uh, well, once again, I was going to do a book, right? Everybody wanted me to do a book, and I went, no, no, I'm not interested. I've already tried doing this, and I don't trust the board, To be honest with you, I don't trust that book. You know... I don't trust somebody else writing the book with me who's going to twist it all around and put it all out wrong. You know, I didn't want to do it for for just money. You know, I'm not interested in that. But this guy came over at the you know the request of one of my friends who had done a lot of the work with in the past. The recordings that I just told you about, a guy called Brian Adams, not the real one, but the other one.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, I had hooked up with this guy, sent him over to Spain, and what happened was he was supposed to be doing a little article for a newspaper, which wasn't determined to be the son yet, but it was just going to be a preview to a book, right? And he was supposed to be helping me with this book, and I didn't really know him, but I took the word of this Brian Adams that he was okay. I sat down with some tapes, and I talked about my life in general, and then um, off the record, he asked me a couple of weird questions about the bust in Japan and I did say, you know, Paul was being stupid, you know, he you know, blah blah blah. I don't remember exactly what I said, but off the record and he stuck that in on the article and said, you know, basically he doesn't care what I think, he just went ahead and did it yeah. to get money. Yeah. And they sold the thing to the sun. Well, once I knew it had been done they asked me to do the other it was coming out but I didn't know he was gonna put that in there. I thought it was going to be a nice little article about me and my relationship with the McCartney. So I did an ad. And I know this is what you're talking about. Because I did an ad and um, I said, I'll tell you about my life, you know, with the McCartneys and blah, 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 next week in the sun, whatever it was. And I said it quite pleasantly and this and that. What they did, and I didn't find this out until a year later, is they overdubbed somebody else's voice saying the same thing that I said, but much harsher. It sounded like I was really pissed off, right? And it was a Manchester accent, and I'm from Birmingham. It's unbelievable. <laughs> this day, I still, I just hate, you know, the people do stuff like that. And they're doing it all over the, the internet now, you know. So I was kind of a guinea pig for that. But um, that's what happened, and they stuck that article out, and it made it look like I was having a go, which I wasn't. And of course, the the McCartney's reaction was in the Playboy magazine, they they sort of had a go at me and treated me like I acted like I was a chauffeur, you know what I mean, who told stories out of school and that kind of thing, which really wasn't the way it was. So I just, I, I sent a letter off to Paul and explained it all, and we just kind of, you know, it's been all right ever since. Even though we haven't spoken for years, we've still been in contact. I mean, I've been in contact with him over this love show you know I, I, I'd i actually suggested that we do it with wings I didn't know he was doing the, the love show and he got back to me a couple of months later he said great idea maybe we'll do it further down the road how are you doing great you mm-hmm. know what I mean uh,
2: just what I was going to ask you when's the last time he's called you when's the last time he's asked how you're doing oh
3: yeah. well this must have been I don't know a couple of months ago three months just before the love thing got done yep. might have been six months ago I don't remember Within the last year, let's put it that way. Okay. Prior to that, he had contacted me when we re-released the band on the run box set. And because they put an extra album in there with interviews... Like, yeah,
2: you're on it. That's right.
3: Yeah, so yeah. He, he, he sent me a really nice letter saying, you know, thanks, man, great memories, you know, I like the, the, um, hope you like the new mixes.
2: But did you find it odd that he put out the Wingspan documentary and didn't have any former band members talking? Linda, but what can you do? No, you're
3: in it. I'm not talking it.
2: No, no, nobody is, but him.
3: contacted talking it, so I just, just the spin he wanted to do with it, I suppose. Yeah. What am I supposed to say about that?
2: No, know? no. Well, last question. What's your future plans?
3: Well, somebody asked me what, they, what I thought about Paul's new album yesterday, and I said, it's okay, but it needed me.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I did contact him at one point uh, recently, and I never got a re- reply. But you know, this is when he was going through this bad thing with the press, with his divorce. And I said, uh, "Give us a call. Let's get back and let's get a let's put another album, you know, Band on the Run together. Looks like you need some cheering up or something like that, you know." Of course, I never got. I said I've got a spare bed in the in the. Because when I first went to Scotland, I stayed on a mattress in his garage because it was just a little cottage. it didn't have a spare bedroom. They had the kids and that, you know. Uh, I just made a little reference to that. i got a spare bed in the garage or something. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's great. <laughs>
3: um, what I'm doing now is I'm just, you know, I want to get this album out so I can kind of go out and tour because this has been a long time since I've been able to do that on my own. Sure. i get a lot of offers to go off and do the odd things you know like this, this hippie fest stuff that i'm doing and i like to go out and do gigs with old pals like eric burden for example which i'm doing this gig with the gig that you're you're writing for a gig when is it at the
0: end uh,
2: july 28th at the mesquamacate that's all exactly. one with eric burden and, and yeah. yeah
3: well i've been doing stuff like that and i did couple of hippie Fests with eric and, and with mountain and all the bands that i've liked over the years i've been sort of seeing and working with again joey mullen from bad Finger. you know great bands and i know these people so it's great fun going out and working meeting with your old pals and doing stuff you know So right. I, I don't mind doing that at all but the whole point is that i want this album to be a launching pad for me to go out and do my own tours you know so that's the general plan in a yeah. nutshell my friend
0: love and in this chain already so we go around We can run but we cannot hide
1: 79's Back to the Egg, what would be the final Wings album. That's Denny Lane taking the lead on again and again and again. Following the interview, I was offered a unique opportunity to help Denny set up his online social media presence. Remember MySpace? And in the interim, albeit for a short period of time, I got to interact with him and his wonderful family. And I know that we're all keeping them in our thoughts at this time. We're going to leave you with a rare live version of Denny Lane doing Live and Let Die. Be sure to come back for the next episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast.
0: When you were young and your heart.